if I can reduce inflammation in the rheumatoid patient, in the lupus patient, without using any medication, that's outcome. If I can reduce the risk of a heart attack and a diabetic, that's outcome. If I can reduce blockages in people with lipoprotein little a, even when those people have had specialists who couldn't lower it, that's outcome. That's the passion I'm talking about. Hi, this is Dr. Habib. Today I want to share some thoughts and ideas with you about observations, experience, and some science as well. So uh, one of the things I find very important uh, is design. Design pleases me, you know, I enjoy it. And when I'm designing things around the office or at home or I'm sketching something, it makes my mind wonder and think about the medical implications and aspects. So I'm going to take you along my thought process. Just imagine when um, you, the first flight, people looked at birds and imagined if they could flap their wings. So then you had the first uh, iteration of an airplane. So you have to make observations and have imagination, and then you have to have some idea about design. And you'll see how design is such a critical part of medicine now. Maybe not the way you've uh, experienced in your doctor's office, but interestingly, where the science is leading us is all about three-dimensional. So you could look at an object like this and say that, well, for someone, they see something nice. For somebody else, they like the color. And for someone like myself, I could look at that and see the lines around the shells. And so I make a lot of observations with nature because I believe that in nature, you have all the answers. The trick is, how do you unlock it? And so I want to give you some science behind design. I had alluded that uh, the shape of the mitochondria will determine the extent of the energy production. That was uh, a study that was looking into dementia. And what they found was by giving choline, which is something that the liver and the gallbladder produces uh, or processes, that then helps the microbes uh, support the mitochondria and the shape change. So when they supplemented choline, the mitochondrial shape change, increasing energy production, and even dementia symptoms seem to improve in animal studies. So the shape is very, very important because even in the mitochondria where we think of that as a very small part of a bigger cell, it is the energy production in all cells, in particular the brain, the muscle, uh, the heart. There's a large concentration of mitochondria in those organs that are working super hard, but every single cell has to have mitochondria. So it's important to get the shape right. And what do we mean by the shape? The shape is the membrane structure. The shape is what's sitting on the membrane. And in fact, the energy production is a protein that sits on the two layers of the mitochondrial membrane. And that machine is three-dimensional. It's literally a three-dimensional machine that turns like a turbine, where electrons go through, turning the turbine, releasing energy in the form of ATP. That's the remarkable thing that nature is. It's that whatever you see on the macro size, it's actually a reflection of almost the same thing on a microscopic scale. I would actually like to give you my opinion that once you unlock a cell, once you unlock the, 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 the mechanism of a cell, you will unlock the meaning of creation. That's how powerful a cell is. The more you study it at a molecular level, the bigger it seems. And the more you study the new thing, there's more to learn. It's an infinite 
its seemingly infinite uh, amount of information in one cell, let alone an organ, let alone the whole body. And I'm uh, postulating that actually the essence of what's in a cell will be the same as the essence of the universe because they're one and the same and we're just figuring out the pattern. So uh, in the mitochondria, you know, you have a turbine that's made of a protein that's three-dimensional. It's called ATPase. And that turbine won't work if the shape is not right. That turbine won't work when it's being damaged by oxidation and inflammation. In fact, the mitochondria is now not only known to be the powerhouse of producing energy, it's your first line of defense against oxidation and inflammation. In fact, it is the antioxidant that's defending you from an immunological insult. And so it really needs to a, a deeper understanding, and there are people just studying mitochondria alone. And that is a wonderful thing. People who study things to the minutest level, it's a wonderful thing. But there's got to be people like ourselves that can elevate ourselves above and look at the big picture. So let me give you some real-life scenarios. So when you have a, a, a brain problem like dementia, and you go to a neurologist, and he specializes in everything to do with the brain, he knows the nth degree of how the neurons work, how sleep interrupts, you know, and then what type of medications are available, what type of scanning is necessary to diagnose the problem. However, the problem is that what goes on in the brain has been affected by the blood-brain barrier, which is then, as a result of a breach in the blood-brain barrier, is communicating with the rest of the body. In fact, we don't know which is the egg and the chicken or the egg. Was it a lower down problem, like a gut problem that created the breach in the blood-brain barrier? Or was the problem in the brain that allowed the communication with the problems in the rest of the body? So the common link between, between the brain is it's intertwined with the GI system, the gut system. And so just to step back and say that when you have a specialist that's on dermatology, a specialist that's just purely endocrinology like diabetic management, and you have a specialist that just works on the GI doing colonoscopies, endoscopies, dealing with inflammatory bowel disease, and you have a neurologist that's dealing with dementia and Parkinson's, and you have a cardiologist that's dealing with heart disease and blockage and heart attack, unfortunately, the problem is that that's not how the body works. The body works in an intertwined mechanism that's is integrated and one affects another and so if i break it down in a simple way and then try to connect all of those for you you'll get the understanding of not only how complicated it is but there is a commonality and design is at the root of it and so as far as the dementia is that there's underlying inflammation in the brain and the problem isn't the amyloid deposition that's the end point the question is, what's causing the inflammation? And what we know about the inflammation is that generally there is a breach in the blood-brain barrier. And the inflammation it has to be addressed. So the natural mechanism of the brain cells to eliminate inflammation is to activate what we call glial cells. And the glial cells, along with many immunological pathways, tries to remove the inflammation and in the process, it deposits beta-amyloid tissue, which you know that as you get more beta-amyloid tissue and tau cells, that's indicative of dementia. But the question is, why is there inflammation? And the breach in the blood-brain barrier has not been finalized yet, but we know that when there's inflammation, there's usually a correlation with the quality of the microbes in the gut, because as far as we know now, 
that most of the inflammation that we talk about is central in the body, means between the central adiposity, we call it visceral fat, and the liver, that's where the immune mediators are coming from. And so when I talk about 70% of heart attacks are preceded by inflammation, it's the inflammation that's coming from the center, which is no different than your diet. As we say, diet affects heart disease. Well, that's an association. So whatever you eat is processed by bacteria and then communicated to the organs around the, the gut. And those organs like the liver and the visceral fat then release mediators. And those mediators are all over the body. And if they breach the blood-brain barrier, and now you have inflammation in the brain, which we know is a prerequisite to dementia, that's how you see the interconnection between different parts of the body. So when was the last time the gastroenterologist told you that the health of the microbes will determine not only your brain health, but your cardiac health? Because when it's cardiac problem, they want you to go to see the cardiologist. When it's a brain problem, they want you to see the neurologist. But when it's an autoimmune disease, it's possible that half of the autoimmune disease can be reversed by lifestyle changes based on your gut health. Because it's those microbes that we know that turn on and turn off. So let's change uh, pace a little bit about reprogramming the cells and how the gut microbe not only can create inflammation which then spreads it along the body and gives different inflammatory problems, heart attack here, autoimmune disease there, dementia over here. It's, it's powerful and you can just say diet and exercise, sure, but I'm trying to give you the science behind that. And if it was so easy, then everybody would have no problems in preventing all diseases. So it's a matter of people making the steps to make the lifestyle changes and someone like me who can bring the science and assist people in key areas to ha learn how to reprogram their body. So this is one of the, one of the major things uh, that is uh, discussed about how do we raise our metabolism? You know, calories in, calories out. I want to start with a bold statement. It's not calories in and calories out. Sure, you know, if you eat a whole bunch of calories, you might gain weight. And if you don't eat any calories, you may lose weight. But that's an association. It's what is that doing to the cells in terms of reprogramming it. And it's probably more important when I tell you that what you eat will signal differently to the uh, microbes that will determine how the cell programs metabolism. So even though it's important to know the calories in, calories out, it's probably more important, not probably, it is more important to know what type of nutrients are in those calories, far more fundamental than absolute calories in, calories out. So how, let me start by saying that when you feed the bacteria what it wants, and we can call that a prebiotic, that means soluble fibers. The bacteria can then use it as fuel. We now know that part of that prebiotic is in the form of short-chain fatty acids. So short-chain fatty acids are fuel to the bacteria. Once you expose your gut microbes to short-chain fatty acids, they come in the form of you know, good quality oils good quality uh, healthy fats. The microbes then activate proteins, uncoupling proteins, that, that uh, activate, say, brown fat, the kind of fat that you have when you're a baby and lose as you get older. 
it activates the mitochondria in, in pathways for lipolysis, that means breaking down fat and beta oxidation of that fat, breaking down of the fat through oxidation to release energy in the mitochondria, which it exists in the liver cells and the muscle cells. But they're doing it because the short chain, short chain fatty acid activates a pathway called AMPK. So that's where it's not just the food, it's what, how it signals to the molecule then activates metabolism. So we can actually reprogram your cells to burn more carbs, burn more fat, so you can lose weight, have more energy, have less uh, stored visceral fat, and, um, and you know, mitochondrial energy is absolutely necessary if you want any part of the body to heal. You need energy, but it's the quality of the energy that's, that's very, very important. So we discussed about how design is important, shape is important, it's in nature, it's actually inside the cell. No matter how small you look at it, the more we learn, the more three-dimensional it looks. So you know, let's talk about three-dimensional. So when we talk about blood pressure, we can just say, we say, use a diuretic, and that might lower the blood pressure. If that doesn't work, we raise the dose or add a second agent, like a calcium channel blocker. Calcium channel blockers relax the smooth muscles of the blood vessels so your blood pressure can drop. If that doesn't work, we raise the dose, and then if that doesn't work, we add a third agent, maybe an ACE inhibitor. ACE inhibitor blocks an enzyme that allows the mu uh, muscles in the, in the blood vessels to relax. So I consider that a two-dimensional approach. The reason is because you didn't ask why is the blood pressure going up. It's not good enough to say that you have the genetics. I have the genetics for blood pressure. Uh, many of my patients have the genetics for blood pressure. They have a family history, plus uh, we've done genomic testing. However, we can control the epigenetic expression of that. So we have to ask the question, why is the blood vessel responding by increasing the pressure? If you don't ask that, you can never solve it. All you can do is control it. So by three-dimensional, what I mean is you have to ask why and what pathways are activated, what are the consequences, and then in terms of pharmaceuticals, we find one uh, medication to... Uh, uh, to give us uh, one pathway of blocking something to achieve a goal. And that works so far, but it would be better to have a three-dimensional approach. First, ask yourself, why is the blood pressure responding? Next, what is it that the blood vessels need? Thirdly, how do you engage all those systems? That's a three-dimensional approach, right? Two-dimensional approach simplistically means, here's a problem, here's a pathway or a pill, and endpoint. And do you really think the body works like that, that the blood pressure, blood vessels are just working by themselves. The cholesterol is just working by itself. The blood sugar is just working by itself. The muscles are working by themselves. The liver is working by itself. They're all intertwined, just like a cell is a powerhouse. They say the electrical uh, circuitry in a cell is as complicated as the electric grid of a big city. I think that's underestimating. And that's the same thing about the simplistic two-dimensional model. So let me start off with a statement, then that will open your eyes. So hypothetically, if you have all the risk factors for a heart attack, which happens to be the biggest killer in society, heart disease and heart attack. So it's important that we have lots of data in that field. We have lots of different ways to uh, approach it. So I'm going to give you the best of what we offer right now. This is what we call secondary prevention. That means that supposing you've had a heart attack and the doctor's identified diabetes, has identified blood pressure, high cholesterol, you know, smoking. If you address every single risk factor, that means that you lower the sugar with the medication, 
you lower the blood pressure with the medication, you lower the cholesterol, the patient happens to stop smoking, you can only reduce the risk of another heart attack by 25%. Let me say that again. After controlling all the risk factors for heart disease, you can only reduce it by 25%. Because each and every one of those treatment plans were two-dimensional, designed for one purpose only. Instead of understanding that maybe they're interconnected and understanding what causes those, that metabolic phenomena is at a molecular level and understanding how to reprogram in the cells is probably the key to getting not only better results, but maybe even preventing it and reversing the disease. So case in point, let's talk about blood pressure. One of the early ways to predict blood pressure is when people have erection problems. Because in order to get an erection, you have to have blood flow. That's essential for men and women. Let me be a little bit more graphic. So when the blood flows into the man, then the sphincter tightens and holds that, that, that firmness. For the woman, the glands uh, uh, gets bigger. The blood flow pushes mucus into the, into the inner mucus lining. So you can see how blood pressure is beyond just a, uh, or blood flow is beyond uh, just a disease, blood pressure high, blood pressure low. There's a lot of function. Uh, let me change pace for a second and tell you that when I measure my blood pressure on a treadmill, it's 210 over 140. Do I have hypertension? When I'm sleeping, my blood pressure is 90 over, six, uh, 90 over 60. Uh, do I have hypotension? Or is my blood vessel responding to its needs? In the same way that long before blood pressure comes, people lose that blood flow and they have what we call erectile dysfunction. 40% of 40-year-olds have it, 50% of 50-year-olds have it, 60% of 60-year-olds have it. And that's the first sign of heart disease, indirectly endothelial dysfunction, which can then lead to atherosclerosis and heart disease. So let's give you some science here. So as you're losing the blood flow, it's because the nitric oxide levels are coming down. So wouldn't it be better to raise the nitric oxide level as opposed to, to uh, using prescription medication. Okay, supposing you choose uh, not to go at the root of the problem. The nitric oxide is the vasodilator, the nitrates come from your diet, your bacteria make into nitrites, the acid in your stomach liberates and releases nitric oxide. Other ways to release nitric oxide is through the liver, through methylation, and through the blood vessels as the blood is rushing through exercise, the shearing force through the blood vessels liberates nitric oxide. It's a constant turnover of nitric oxide, it's an antioxidant, it's a detoxifier, it's important for blood flow. So as the nitric oxide level comes down, erection problems start to happen, and later on the blood pressure starts to come up. So when the blood pressure comes, the doctor says, let's go through the algorithm, let's go through the standard of care. Try dieting, try exercise, oh, when that fails, then, then let's go and, and take the medication. And the medication did not address nitric oxide. What the medication addressed is just the blood vessel by itself. Didn't ask what's going on around the blood vessels. Why is the blood vessel raising the blood pressure? And nitric oxide is just one, one of the reasons. It's not the whole thing. It's much more complicated than that. But the other component of uh, blood pressure is immune uh, problems, immune dysregulation, or say inflammation. So if you have inflammation around your body and you know that blood is flowing all over your body, you know that your blood is carrying all the nutrients that you need to survive. That is your glucose, that is your minerals, that is your B vitamins, including neutrophils and immune cells and immune mediate. They're traveling in your bloodstream and working like barometers. They're your they're your um, gods. So when they see an infection, they'll take those white cells through the bloodstream to the location of the problem. So if I have an infection in my finger, 
my blood has to travel and provide the white blood cells, those immune cells, to the finger to overcome this infection. So when you have inflammation all over your body, your blood vessels are sending the blood with those immune cells, and those immune cells go through the blood vessel to reduce the inflammation. And in the process of trying to reduce inflammation, it starts to tighten up the muscle around the wall of the blood vessels. So it becomes tighter and harder and the blood pressure starts to rise. That's the same analogy as blood carrying white blood cells going through to the brain and the brain that's fighting inflammation, those immune reactions create what we call the deposition of beta amyloid tissue. So beta amyloid is not the disease, it's the endpoint. The endpoint as a, as a kind of a collateral damage to fighting the inflammation. So short-term inflammation can be useful. You sprain your ankle, the inflammation sends white blood cells, you recover, no problem. We're talking about chronic inflammation. And this inflammation is such a complicated subject because it could be microscopic, medium size, or macroscopic. There is injuries, so we can talk about inflammation at a different point, but I'm trying to link up how inflammation starts in the core area, goes around the body, each of the organ systems are responding to it, but your genetics will determine how you express or respond to that inflammation. So for example, if I have the genes for blood pressure and I have inflammation, my blood pressure will go up. If I have the gene for blood pressure and I'm not allowing my body to absorb nitrates and make nitric oxide, then I'm allowing my blood pressure to become uh, expressed, epigenetics, right? So, so blood pressure needs to be dealt with in a three-dimensional manner. Let's talk about diabetes. Diabetes has always been about lowering the sugar, and that's only 50% of the treatment, because just like I keep telling you, that when you have a problem like a high sugar, and you have a strategy of maybe using metformin, which makes the insulin more sensitive at the uh, liver level, you are using one modality. Then when that fails, you add a, 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 um, uh, a, a sulfonyl urea, which is to help the pancreas push out more insulin, because all you're trying to do is the, bring that sugar down without asking why is the insulin why is the sugar going up the sugar is going up because the insulin levels are not adequate to keep the sugar at a therapeutic level that comes long after the real problem the real problem was insulin resistance let me go back to the analogy of the blood pressure long before blood pressure there's endothelial dysfunction and endothelial dysfunction is synonymous with erectile dysfunction as well as low nitric oxide levels amongst many things. Long before high sugar, there's insulin resistance and other warning signs to tell you that the diabetes is coming long before it comes. But hypothetically, the sugar is borderline, you try diet you, uh, and exercise, that doesn't work. First line therapy, use things like uh, metformin. If that fails, then you add the second layer. If that fails, you increase the dose and so on and so on until you exhaust the pancreas and end up on insulin. My point is, that's a two-dimensional approach of just controlling the sugar when you know that it's a three-dimensional problem with multiple factors that start at stem from insulin resistance. Insulin resistance is like saying, you have insulin to help that sugar be brought into the cell so you can burn it as fuel. That's what is supposed to happen. But if you have an insulin receptor that is not effective, there is resistance. You can resist the insulin receptor by just damaging it. You can damage that receptor by having inflammation. You can damage that receptor by having oxidation. 
just if you want it in a simplistic term, just have a bad lifestyle. Eat junk, don't exercise, don't sleep, stress yourself out, you're gonna damage that insulin receptor because you know inflammation doesn't come from nowhere. It's your lifestyle that it's a communication between what you eat, what goes into your gut, how the microbes process it, and then it then controls your metabolism, controls the immune system, and creates the environment for the other organs to release inflammation. So if you have things like oxidation and inflammation, you are damaging the insulin receptor. If the insulin receptor is damaged, then that glucose can't effectively get into the cells, so it hangs around the blood. That's the definition of high blood sugar, right? So if you could just make that insulin receptor more sensitive by cleaning up your diet, detoxifying your body, turning off inflammation, then that glucose will more effectively go from the bloodstream into the cell, and that's how you can prevent diabetes. But hypothetically, even if you wait until you have the diabetes, you can reverse the diabetes. And again, what I'm saying here is that it needs to be a three-dimensional approach. So one approach is to understand what comes before the diabetes. Why is the sugar coming up? Insulin resistance is now a hot topic. And we don't give up on controlling the sugar, but you can control the sugar by just giving the ingredients that's necessary for getting the glucose through the steps into the cell, through the membrane, and some of those steps are ingredients like biotin, chromium, vitamin B3, magnesium. These are the stepping stones, so I call those metabolic. So you can control the sugar by just adding the nutrients that your body may be depleted in and your body will work more efficiently. Insulin resistance is a little bit more complicated because it's an immunological phenomenon. It's something that we didn't even understand 10 years ago. Five years ago, maybe. Now, three years ago, we started with new medications that rely on activating things in the gut called incretins, and we realized that now we can address insulin sensitivity at the liver level, at the, uh, at the adipose level, at the pancreas level, at the uh, muscle level, at the gut level. And that class of medication is GLP receptor agonist, which you may know as Trulicity and Bidurion and so forth. The point is that you can recreate that with your own diet and lifestyle. You can improve your gut, making the gut more insulin sensitivity. You can activate the muscles in your body by exercise and you would make your uh, uh, muscles more insulin sensitive. You can have a clean diet and give the nutrients your liver needs so your liver can do what it's supposed to do, which is make the insulin sensitive. And that also bodes well to the pancreas being sensitive. Because if there's inflammation, that inflammation will damage the liver. That inflammation will damage the pancreas. So you're accelerating this metabolic phenomenon. It's not just sugar going up in a linear manner. You'll find that you're going up in an exponential manner. It's that you know, people move from type uh, 2 diabetes to needing insulin within sometimes just years, which is ridiculous because in the past it would have been it would have taken maybe 10 years or 20 years and 25 years to go from uh, you know, uh, diabetes type 2, uh, which is a mature onset diabetes, requiring more and more medication to finally needing insulin. Now it's becoming short and short because it's becoming a much more complicated problem. The environment is much more complicated. Those stepping stones, the nutrients are not in the diet. The, the environment is more inflammatory because there's, uh, there's chemicals in the environment that are positively damaging the gut lining, allowing what we call leaky gut, allowing toxins from the gut to invade into the bloodstream. The immune system is now attacking it and responding, and chronic inflammation then damages the liver, damages the pancreas, allowing insulin resistance. So it's a very complicated 
moving problem, it's a moving target, it's three-dimensional, and as such, your doctor needs to be attentive and understand that you must incorporate lifestyle, incorporate natural products, and then where necessary, use medication. As I just said, you can use medications for uh, like GRP receptor agonists to optimize your sugar level and address insulin sensitivity, because as soon as those medications came on board, you'll be shocked to know that beforehand, diabetics had twice the risk of a heart attack as non-diabetics. And that two diabetics, or any diabetic, would have twice the risk of a heart attack as a normal population. So the point I'm trying to make is that up until recently, whether you control the sugar or didn't control the sugar in a diabetic, they had twice as many heart attacks until you address insulin sensitivity with these new medications. And since those medications, as you'll see TV ads to say, it can actually lower heart disease. You can lower heart disease by changing your diet, altering the microbes, decreasing inflammation, increasing insulin sensitivity at multiple organ levels, because those will prevent dementia, those will prevent heart attack, they will prevent inflammatory bowel disease, they will prevent autoimmune disease. It's not if, it's a fact. The question is, just because you don't have a drug to fix it, you must do what it takes. Because remember, the world has all the answers. The trick is, how do you unlock what's in this world? That comes from simple designs, observation, imagination, innovation, and the passion to search for better outcome. So one of the things I tell people is this. There are a lot of bells and whistles around you. There are people with big names and big titles and big institutions, and I'm okay with all of that. But where the rubber meets the road is really simple. My question is, to you and everybody is, what's your outcome? So when you have the diabetic, did you prevent the heart attack? When you have the diabetic, did you prevent the eye problem, the kidney problem, and the, uh, and, and the, and the neuropathy? When you had a person with high cholesterol, and they had lipoprotein little a, and your medication didn't work because you didn't have the medicine for lipoprotein little a, which created, it's the most atherogenic, the one that creates the most of the blockages. When you have inflammation and you can only reduce heart disease, heart attack by 25% because you didn't address inflammation. There's no single drug to reduce inflammation. There's anecdotal about one or two statins like Crestor being able to do that. But it's a global phenomenon. It needs a global approach, not a one, two dimensional pathway drug problem. So I ask again, what are the results? So you say that somebody is giving you lifestyle changes of changing your diet, taking uh, certain supplementation. What is the outcome? If the outcome is no better, then that wasn't a good, uh, a good pathway either. So what I believe in is get the best of science, the best of innovation from multiple specialties, whether it's biochemistry, biology, physics, nature, plant, animal uh, science. You use a clinician's ability to make observation, 25 years of observation about how we're using the same medicine over and over for new indication. That, that's a problem. Using the same tools, expecting a different result doesn't work well. And then the important thing is to capture all this information, knowing what testing to, to avail for better information, to know what therapies give the best results, even if it's not directly in your medical journal, 
than to put it together in a way and institute a plan where you can have not only metrics to measure where you were before the program, where you are after, but what is your outcome? If I can reduce inflammation in the rheumatoid patient, in the lupus patient, without using any medication, that's outcome. If I can reduce the risk of a heart attack and a diabetic, that's outcome. If I can reduce blockages in people with lipoprotein little a, even when those people have had specialists who couldn't lower it, that's outcome. That's the passion I'm talking about. Innovation and passion. But it all starts with imagination.